Welcome to the Church Plus Podcast. Church Plus is a conversation around growing trends, best practices, and how stuff works in your local church. My name is John Bennett. I'm going to be your host. I'm very excited about this month's podcast. It's actually an interview I was recently involved in with two of my colleagues at Generis. Generis, as you know, has been around since 1989, really become a trusted voice in the church space when it comes to generosity, stewardships, all things giving and campaigns. And we're going to discuss on this interview, uh, this roundtable format, a few questions that I think are relevant to you as you're coming out, navigating out of the pandemic, thinking about the future, thinking about the, the vision you may have for 2022 and beyond. Questions like, are campaigns even working? Uh, are you working with churches right now? Are people doing campaigns? What are you learning? What are their experiences like? And if churches are doing campaigns, what are making them work well in this season? I think you're going to be a little bit surprised at some of the answers that we're going to share with you in this roundtable discussion. So I'm excited to introduce it to you. So let's jump in to my roundtable discussion with two of my generous colleagues. Thanks for setting us up. You do such a great job of uh, setting us uh, uh, in place and in motion here and getting us all together. And just one more thing, um, in the promos, there was a fourth J who was mentioned. So this was truly the J show, Jim, Jennifer, John, and Julie. Julie Bullock was supposed to be with us here today, but Julie had a very last minute shift in a schedule with a client. And she is in a meeting with a client that she just absolutely could not get off of. Um, if any of you know us, you know that the one thing that drives us more than anything else in our work is our commitment to clients. We have to say it this way, client first. We try to do what's in the right, the best interest of the client. So when uh, when Julie flagged that, we all said, Julie, we got this. The three of this will take it. We will miss you, uh, but uh, we'll move on and then we'll do it. So Julie is absent today, but we are all well prepared to cover everything that would have been covered and move on with it. So here, let me just speak to how this whole idea came up. We um, were sitting around talking about our workshop series. And as we were talking about that, we just kind of stopped and said to ourselves, what's the one thing we're hearing over and over as people are reaching out to Generis? And the thing that they're saying is, are campaigns still a thing? I mean, we've been through two years of, you know, whatever words you want to use to describe that, uh, you know, this recent unpleasantness, if we, if we want to use that term. Uh, now, freedom, uh, John, Jen uh, Jennifer, any of you flown in the last couple of days? I flew yesterday. Nope. Freedom. Yeah. Freedom. Freedom. Yes. It was, it was to the point where I was, I finished, you know, my, my cup of coffee and I was trying to find my mask to put, oh, I don't have to put it back on. <laughs> so we're now finding our way out of this. And I think the question, are campaigns still a thing? John, Jennifer, just, just say a word or two about that. Are campaigns still a thing? Go ahead, Jennifer. Campaigns are absolutely a thing, Jim. Um, I have a client that just wrapped up a campaign a couple of weeks ago, and they hit 130% of their campaign goal um, by the time we got to Commitment Sunday, and they are inching their way forward, probably going to end up at about 150% of their campaign goal. Um, and in the middle of winter, in a snowstorm, uh, in a pandemic, it, all possible factors. 
John, what say you? Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. You know, uh, I just think historically, because one of the things we like to say around Generis and, and Jim, you sort of made this popular, is there's never a good time to do a campaign and there's never not a good time to do a campaign. So right, right. when we look at all the factors uh, that could play into this, we had a lot of those in the poll a moment ago. I just remember back historically to 2009, uh, I was just getting going in this coaching area of what I do now. And in 2009, I led three very large churches through very successful campaigns. And, and as we all know, the meltdown started in 08 and it was, mm -hmm. it was picking up steam in, in 09. And yet things still went well. And I would say based on the last eight months of my own work and a lot of the colleagues here that I know of at Generis, uh, our, our business is going to up and to the right right now. A lot of people are engaging us, talking about what's next and really getting involved. And sort of like Jennifer just said a moment ago, I've had two uh, campaigns that ran during the, uh, during, the, during the pandemic for the last 24 months, just ended up over the last couple of months. Both of them, like Jennifer's illustration, had more cash come in than actually were pledged. And I think for two reasons. Number one was, I think they were really good during the pandemic to say, listen, ministry is still going on. It's not just going on inside the church, but outside the church. Right. And I think they did a great job of tying generosity and vision together. The second thing I think they did, one of these was in a rural context. So I bet 10, 15, 20 percent of their people were hurting during the pandemic, mm. lost their jobs. Hours were cut back. Something shifted in the economy for them. So they set up ways to really be empathetic towards those who are hurting at the same time to go. We're still on mission. The church is more important right now than it's ever been. And so I think that's just two very simple reasons why they were successful in the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, you're right, John. I do like to, uh, my ninth grade English literature teacher would be so proud of me to quote Charles Dickens after all these years, but the opening line <laughs> from A Tale of Two Cities still applies when you're talking about the timing of capital campaigns. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. You pick a time, any time in the last 25 years, I'll give you five good reasons why it's a great time and I'll give you five good reasons why it's not a good time for a capital campaign. So we'll speak to that a little bit more, but capital camps, campaigns are still a thing. In fact, I would say, you know, I hope you've heard Jennifer and John say, even through the pandemic, they've been a thing. We saw about a six-month period from March to September in 2020 when there was a massive pause. No, none of us knew what had hit us. We didn't know if we'd been run over by a truck or just glanced by, you know, a bumper car or something. We just knew something had happened. You know, it felt like maybe we'd been on the, in the ring with Muhammad Ali for a little while, but that's, you know, that's never fatal. It just, you got to get up and get back at it, right? And so churches got back up off the ground, got back at it starting in late 2020. And we've seen just an uptick since then. Now, did you have to do it differently back then? Yeah. You know, one of the things we learned in the last two years, <clears throat> and be assured this was not on our roadmap in late 2019, we can now walk you through a full digital campaign without ever meeting in person with anyone in your church. We know how to do that. We've done that successfully. We would still prefer to meet in person. That's still going to be our default mode because engagement and, you know, communicating with people in person is still a better option. But we were able to navigate that during the last two years. And some of our clients have had extraordinary experiences. And so now as we're coming out of this, we're seeing even more and more interest uh, in that. Um, 
you know, I think both of you kind of spoken to this idea of, you know, why are campaigns working in this season? Let's just unpack that just a little bit more and see if we can mine a couple of things out of that. Um, John, how about if you go first this time, just one or two things, one or two reasons why you think campaigns are working so well in this season. Yeah, I think one reason, uh, and Jim, uh, I don't know if you and I have even talked about this example, but back in May of 2020, so March, the world shut down, Right, right. Uh, you know, April and May, we're still wondering what's going to happen. A lot of uncertainty. I was contacted by a church and said, listen, we got a building going up. We need to do a campaign. I'm like, you sure about that? They're like, absolutely. Uh, so we did it. And uh, I would say the result came in a little bit lower than it was. However, uh, they are tracking right on right on track with what the result was. So they were probably about 20 percent below what they could have been in a non-pandemic context but still had a very good result. And again, the results right now in terms of pledges being fulfilled is going very well. But one thing I think drove that, Jim, and that was a sense of urgency. The pastor did a great job saying, listen, we locked in the price. Prices are not escalating here. We're going to build this building about 30,000 square feet, $5 million. And there was a sense of urgency because they were growing, even though they're having church in the parking lot for one service. And then those who dared came inside for the other service in June, July, and August, and September, uh, there was a sense of urgency that they believed that the area they were in was growing so much that the pastor did a great job casting that vision. So I got to admit, I was one to raise my hand and go, are you really sure we should do this? Uh, but together we work, and, and God really put his hand of blessing on it. Yeah, love that. Jennifer, how about you? You know, I think the way we're doing campaigns uh, is a little bit different, but for me, the factors about what makes them work have not changed. Uh, church has to have a compelling vision uh, for what they're doing. It's, there's got to be a reason. You've got to have good leadership. There has to be a sense that God is in this and that God is calling you forward. And there has to be some kind of a, a need or an urgency. And I would have said those four things prior to the pandemic as well. So I think um, how we do it is different, but I think those factors are still the things that I encourage my clients to think about. Yeah, we're going to say a word about that uh, a little later on in our conversation about innovation. But I think it's important for us just to jump in right here and say, there are some timeless principles that have not changed in the pandemic, timeless principles of why campaigns work that have not changed. Now, the expression and the styling of some of those mm -hmm. things has changed in COVID, but the principle itself has not changed. And so that's what we want to make sure that people are listening to, you know, the old adage. There's not much new under the sun. There really isn't in terms of the principles. The styling and the expression of that is where the innovation has come. And we'll speak, speak to that, you know, um, at the end here as one of our talking points and kind of coming into that. Um, what, what, you know, one of the things I, I hear out there is I hear things that, um, you know, leaders are feeling that are real to them, but I know just pretty much from the perch that I sit in, and you guys are like the same, we get to see a lot of churches and most leaders only see their church. And so they end up thinking these things and you're like, no, if you saw what we saw, so it's actually not true. Some, some misperceptions. What about this whole bad timing because of the economy, mm -hmm. Jennifer? Speak to that for a second. I would love to speak to that. Um, it's interesting. I am actually seeing in many of my uh, clients that people, God's people who have generous hearts and who understand what's happened in the world, we've all been experiencing it. 
this sense of uh, the economy, rising construction costs, all of these things that we tend to think of as fears and reasons not to do a campaign. Uh, visionary people are saying, let's do it. You know, pastor, I know that construction costs are gonna be higher a year from now. Let's do it now, I wanna give now. Um, and there's this sense of urgency among people who understand these things that in many ways they're giving more perhaps than they might have because they want this to escalate faster. Um, so I'm seeing those things that, that people are holding up as reasons not to do a campaign for a lot of givers. It's the reason that they want to give right now. Yeah. Yeah. John, anything you would, would add to that? Yeah. yeah I think things that you, you hear yeah. from leaders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what uh, Jennifer said, just nailed in the head is so true because again, do we wait because inflation is going to slow down or construction prices are somehow going to come back? I'm hearing the same thing as Jennifer. But also, I would say uh, I have a, a client right now that last year we sort of did a little bit of a slower runway and we did some coaching with them toward the end of the year. And the idea was we just want to say thank you to those who helped us for the last two years. Stay faithful be generous mm -hmm. and really help us make it as a church. So we just did some celebration dinners. We probably did mm -hmm. about 12 of them. It's a pretty mm -hmm. large church, uh, uh, two or three different campuses. And uh, we had a goal internally of $1.3 million raised over and above what we thought normally would come in, but we were not going to be an ask. It's like we need to get these many gifts at this level to be able to get 1.3 million. We just celebrated. We celebrated and said, That's thank right. you. Here's what we learned from the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And as your pastor, I wanted to let you know that we're making some shifts mm -hmm. and changes because of that. But I also want you to know I'm excited about 2022 and beyond. And lo and behold, $1.3 million came in, even though we didn't specifically ask for it. And I think it was to Jennifer's point a moment ago is there are people that are ready to go. There are people who are saying, you know what, this is the greatest era, the greatest time for the church to really shine. So if we become an outward facing church, I believe some great things are going to happen. And that sense of mission seems to be really a, a fuel, the fuel for a lot of people that want to give. Yeah. Yeah. That's I good. love those. I love those thoughts. Jennifer. I had one more thing I wanted to say to Jim. Another thing I'm hearing a lot from people and seeing is this sense that uh, we can't start planning for a campaign yet because our construction costs are in right, flux right. or our permits are backed up. We, we got to wait. You know, the city's behind the the pipeline of everything is behind. Um, and I'm encouraging clients. Let's keep moving forward. If those other things are in place, the vision, the urgency, a sense of God's leading the leadership, let's go ahead and start planning and building the very last thing we can drop in uh, is a final project cost. And so I've got three clients at the moment that their campaigns are all ready to go and will literally hit print, put drop in that this is the final construction cost we think um, and plan and, you know, and move forward from there. So um, waiting is not always the best strategy. Yeah, well said, Jennifer, and I'm hearing that one a lot out there. I want to go back and check and talk about this idea of giving when the economy is good versus when it's not good. Two observations. One, uh, when the Bible talks to some of the great giving stories that, that it records, uh, many of those stories are under adverse circumstances, not in the best of times. Many of them are. That's number one. Secondly, if we just think through this, you know, pastors, I'm speaking to you. If we think through this on a spiritual level, and if we believe that giving is really more about transformation than, than money, then mm -hmm. the transformation that's likely to happen in our people is, is more likely 
in times when the economy is not as good because the giving that you would give has to trust God at a deeper level there than when times are really good. I'll just give a real quick personal story. In 2009, John, you alluded to 2009. 2009 was a very tough year for Generis. We had, it was followed by one of our best years. 2008 was one of our best years ever. 2009 was one of the sharpest downturns we've ever experienced, even including COVID. We didn't even see that much, uh, that big a downturn in COVID uh, as we saw in 2009. And as one of the owners of Generis, as you can imagine, my income is directly tied to the success of Generis. So it's February of that year. And we are writing our monthly check to Perimeter Church, my home church. And I suggested to Nancy that we might want to give at a lower level for a little while. And she looked at me and said something to this effect. So let me get this straight. You know how to give when times are good, but you don't know how to give when times are not so good. A time of front. Hey, honey, write the same check we wrote last month, right? She nailed it right on the head. I, I found that light, that not trusting God in my heart, guys. I, I mean, I've been in this for 29 years. My generosity story started in 1985. I've had this for a long time. I sit behind closed doors and coach some of the most influent and hear that had crept into my, and if it can creep into my heart, it can creep into yep. anybody's heart. It really can. And so <laughs> that's what we're really saying is pastors think counterintuitively here that this could actually be a time when your people have to trust God at a deeper level. And spiritually, that might be better for them than giving in good times. And I know that you've probably not thought through that. So just kind of putting that out there as, as food for thought. So now you all know a little bit about what happens at my house in the giving story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jim, uh, Jim, just to interject uh, on that, I was talking to a colleague not too long ago, and he basically said he was uh, contacted by a church and they were trying to wonder why giving was going down. And so he said, well, send me some information, some financials and so on. When he looked at the financials, he thought he saw something wrong. So he called the pastor up and said, uh, pastor, I just want to ask you a question. It looks as though by your financials that you guys have close to $10 million cash in the bank on a $2 million budget per year. Is that right? And he said, yeah. He said, uh, well, why is that? And he said, well, the board's trying to be a good steward. He said, I think you're mixing up what stewardship means. It's not being frugal. It's all about leveraging the limited resources we have to give. And right. so the point was right. pretty simple. Why would anybody want to give to your church when you're sitting on that much cash? And I think the point is true. We can try to be safe, but we can't get to the point where we want God to bless us, where God becomes unnecessary in our life anymore, you know? Right. And That's I think they awesome. almost bought into that lie. <laughs> it's great to have a little reserves. I mean, you know, as a financial guy, I like having a little right. reserves, but I mean, that feels like a lot, a lot. Yeah. That's, that's kind of crossed yeah, over into hoarding, times, don't right? you think? Yeah, hoarding. You don't need to do that. Right. Hey, so let's kind of, let's explore this idea of, of why a church should engage in a campaign. John, let's, let's go to you here. You know, we know about buildings and, you know, paying off mortgages mm -hmm. and things like that. What other reasons are there that a church might go into a campaign in terms of things they might need to fund? Yeah, you know, interesting on that question, Jim, is that I'm seeing uh, campaigns that are a lot more diversified than they used to. It used to be like, hey, we've got a building out here. Let's raise a certain amount of money to pay off as much of that new building as possible. But I'm seeing more, especially over the last three years, really a lot of diversity around it. Could be debt retirement, but it also could be focusing on mission. And I, I saw st a statistic the other day. I know you like this, Jim. You're a, you're a numbers guy. Uh, Barner Research says that 51% of millennials say they would give more to missions 
if they believe their church was actually more committed to missions, meaning being more of an outward facing church. I thought that was wow. pretty interesting. Wow. Millennials wow. get a, le- a bad rap. You know, they're not committed to the church. They don't understand the church. I think a lot of times, as you and I have talked about, Jim, they're just kind of confused about the language of church. They may not That's see right. it as an That's institution, right. but they do see it as a movement. They do see it as a solution to a problem that God wants to solve in the world. And so they're basically saying, listen, I'll give more to the program. I'll give more to the uh, to the budget. But I want to know, are you going to be in more of an outward facing church? So I just had a client that uh, we did a one fund campaign. You may want to explain that in a moment, Jim, but we had a $9 million goal. Uh, our culmination of that, our, our giving weekend was in March of this year. Uh, the pastor had various components in the one fund. You know, it was some of their program budget. It was also some project improvements they wanted to do, as well as a real robust mission budget, both locally and internationally. And when we had the $9 million day, you know, we're trying to hit that goal, we ended up with over $10 million. And what I loved about their response to that, they came back two weeks later to the church and they said, listen, you've given generously. We're going to take half of that, 50% of that. And we're going to make sure that these budgets that we had toward mission are going to be increased all the more. And I think that one of the things that I learned in that whole process was that it wasn't just a campaign to say, listen, we want to do something exciting at the church, like come on back, fill the pews, fill the seats. It was like, no, we're on mission and we really want you to join us because we think this is the church's finest hour. So it was kind of a cool result there. That is so good. That's so good. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think what I'm, what we want to say here is just expand your thinking beyond just thinking about building projects and, you know, paying off mortgages. I use a term a lot of times uh, with my clients that I call one-time investments. In other words, it may not be the very traditional thing, but it's a one-time investment. You know, a church says, well, well, we need to start this new ministry over here and we can't absorb it into our budget. Well, why don't we put $800,000 in your capital campaign and let's just you know, start it up right now and support it from the capital campaign and then wean it over to the operating budget over the next two or three years. That's a one-time investment in the capital infrastructure of your church, even though it's not bricks and mortar, you know, things like that. I think you gave some good examples. And just a quick word on our two approaches. We do have, for those of you who don't know Generis, we have two approaches. One is the traditional capital campaign, campaign where we receive from the congregation uh, a commitment over and above whatever their current giving is. That's the more uh, historic way of doing capital campaigns. Lots of our clients still do that. In fact, probably about 46 to 48 percent of our our, our clients still do that. Then about 11 years ago, 12 years ago now that we started in 2010, we started a, a concept and approach called One Fund, where we take all of your needs for the next two years put them into one big undesignated budget and we fund that. So we fund two years of operating and two years of all the capital and one-time investments that you need in there. So now we're asking your givers to speak into their total commitment for the next two years, not just their over and above commitment. And we'd be glad to offline to say more about that to any of you. We're, we're kind of known for having two approaches, but both of those campaigns approaches have worked well for us in this season. Hey, Jennifer, let me ask you a question about just kind of getting started. I think one of the things that people um, are not clear about is, you know, what does it look like when you get it, when you're getting a campaign started? What does it look like when you go in there maybe for the first time and do a kickoff? Mm-hmm. And this would be what, you know, we would say this to those of you who think you're going to do it on your own or with a professional, mm-hmm. this would be something we would say you need to consider. So speak to us a little bit about that. 
I love that first time on site with clients or that first session, if it's in Zoom, however we do it. Um, for me, it's a whiteboard session. I come in with my markers um, and we talk about what is it that you want to do and why. And there has to be a why for every what. It can't just be a list of things that the church wants or needs. There's got to be a why. So we talk about what, we talk about why. And we get really specific. So, um, you know, if you're planning to build a new wing for your children's ministries department, that seems like a pretty easy thing to get people excited about, right? You know, it's going to cost $4 million. We're going to have a new nursery for the infants. It's going to be more secure. We're going to have new, new spaces for our kids. We're doing it. The why is because we're investing in the next generation. We want to share the gospel with the next generation. The what and the why. Easy. Uh, what about if it's a debt reduction campaign or a campaign for a roof? Um, I'll just pause and say, I love debt reduction campaigns because there's still a why. Okay. Yeah. So why do we want to reduce debt? Well, because we want to have more money to go into ministry. Okay. So we're going to move money from mortgage to ministry. It's pretty compelling. What are you going to do with it? Okay. Well, we're going to invest more in our young adult ministries, uh, we're going to send more to our overseas mission partners. Uh, we're going to bring on another staff member to grow a new area of ministry. Um, that's pretty compelling to your people. Putting a new roof on. Okay, not very exciting. Why? Because we value gathering as a community. Because we, we value worship. Because we're going to invest in our worship space. That's the why. Uh, so once people understand the why that's connected to your what, it's transformational, not only for your congregants who are hearing it, but also for your leaders who get to talk about it. Uh, it's much more compelling to preach about and talk about and invite people to give to. Yeah. Well said, well said. And so many times, John and Jennifer, I know that you hear this. I hear it a lot. Well, you know, we got some things on our list that are not real sexy and it's like, <laughs> But your vision is so compelling, and that's what it's about. It's not the what. Yeah, the what is not very sexy. But if you're talking about this is our vision and the church God has called us to be, and these are things, no matter how, you know, undramatic they might be, unsexy, unglamorous, whatever you want to call it, these things have to get out of the way so that we can become that church. And that's why the why is so big. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, and, and, and I've seen this recently with a couple of churches where their vision, when they put it out, when they're you know putting it in front of their congregation, there is general agreement. Yes, pastor. Yes, yes, yes. But then when we talk about financial commitment, it's like, oh, wait a second. And the way we would say that at Generis is this, is there is a chasm, not a gap, a chasm between general agreement congregational vote Mm -hmm. and financial commitment. I will sign on with a financial commitment for the next two years or three years to this initiative, whatever it is. There's a big chasm between those two. A campaign process is designed to bridge that gap and bring people from general agreement 
to financial commitment. You can't have 96% of your congregation saying yes to it on vote Sunday, and then 32% of your church signing on with financial commitments. That's not a good sign for your church. You want to move as many people as possible from here to here. And that's why you connect vision, the why mm -hmm. to the what, because that begins to help you bridge the gap in a way. Because if all I'm doing is giving to put on a roof, I'll never get excited about that. If, I'm get, if you're telling me that I'm giving to help this church become that, guarantee I'll get lit up about that. Even if it's like, yeah, get those things out of the way. I want to see that kids building. Yeah. But to see the kids building, we got to do these things first. Right. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Let hey, me, um, can I add, can I add one more please. thing to that? Yes, Jim, please, too? Please. I love that. Um, another thing I'd love to do at that very first session, it's very connected to what we're talking about here is we talk about what are the financial goals, right? Well, the financial goals are, we need to raise 10 million for all these things, whatever they are, new children's wing, new roof, eradicate our debt. Um, but I always ask clients, well, what are your non-financial goals? Oh. How are we going to know we're successful on the other side of it? Okay. One goal is $10 million, but what, are, what about over here? And remarkably, people can come up with a long list and it's to what you just said, Jim, we want more engagement. Um, we'd like to engage the newer families in our church as givers. We'd like to disciple our kids about generosity. We'd like to start five new small groups. Um, you know, you get all these other things that are also wins in a campaign. So it's partially about raising resources and it's partially about that broader work of discipleship and engaging people around a common vision for the church, which is really exciting. Mm. All right, John. So she set you up for the next question that I asked. She must have known what I was going to come to you on. So one of the goals should be growing your people, growing your givers' hearts, discipleship. You know, give me some principles, some examples of what you're seeing out there for pastors teach and how they're leveraging the opportunities for discipleship during the campaign. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, I would kind of agree, uh, Jennifer's whole thing about you know, financial goals and non-financial goals. And I think the way that we've said it here at Daenerys for a while is that there's a to goal and a from goal. The money is going to go to a new project, debt retirement, whatever it might be, to, but then also from. What's the from? Uh, the from has to be from a heart that's being transformed through the process of discipleship. Because let's face it, money is a insanely complex issue with most of us. You know, we're dealing with it daily, monthly, whatever it might be, depending on what your upbringing was, depending on the pressure you have now as a business owner. It's just insanely complex. It's why Jesus talked more about money than heaven, because for some people, running out of money is worse than running out of heaven, right? So the idea is that we really need to disciple people in this entire idea of what it means to grow. So it's to and it's from. And there's two principles that everyone's going to understand these things. You probably talked about them if you're a senior leader. Uh, the first, of course, is stewardship you know, that we're managers and not owners. But I want to put a little bit of a twist on that because I think my story is like most of the stories on this uh, Zoom call today. My story is pretty simple. I received the gospel for the first time that I can remember in the third grade when I was a nine-year-old kid. Uh, I heard about Jesus received the gospel. Here's the thing, though. I, I never put a dime into that building and received the gospel for free. I remember a little bit later on, I was just a knucklehead as a high school senior, and it was my high school youth pastor that came to me and probably saved my life before I went to college, challenged me, I mean, really got into my grill and challenged me about being a knucklehead, 
And I went to college and I went and found a church that really began to disciple me. Again, a building I didn't invest in, a ministry. I certainly never paid that youth pastor's salary. I received both the gospel and discipleship for free. So right now, as someone who's a steward, I'm standing on the shoulders of those who sacrificed and went before me. So my entire life is a stewardship of giving and really, in essence, paying it forward. So I think stewardship is the foundation. Secondly, I would say, as we all understand the word generosity, the concept of generosity, but I love the phrase, the journey of generosity. And I think that's really what we try to bake into our campaign structure. And that is, it's an invitation every single day to be a little bit more generous. And it's an opportunity to really be discipled in this. Let me give you a quick example. That church I mentioned that raised an additional 1.3 million at the end of the year. We're in a one fund process right now about $17 million over the next couple of years. And I just two weeks ago, the pastor looked at me and our little executive team there, and he said, listen, the financial goal is $17 million, but he said, I don't even care if we don't hit that. And I knew he was serious. He said, the spiritual goal to really uh, allow people to have a conversation around generosity is a more important goal to me. And so what we're doing is very specifically and strategically building uh, discipleship conversations into every aspect of the One Fund campaign. So when we get to the end, I hope we hit $17 million. But per the pastor, even if we don't, if people are having a real conversation around generosity, it's going to be a win for he and the team. That's so good, John. You know, and I can tell you from the calls that we get in here when I'm speaking to people who are calling us to talk about our process and what we do you know, generally they're calling in wanting to know how much money we can raise for them, which is, you know, obviously an outgrowth of what we do. But what I try to help them understand is, look, what, what you're calling us for is a capital campaign. What we're going to deliver to you is an encounter with God for your people as it relates to their money and possessions. And I would say it this way, we're going to, we're going to hopefully create a season of accelerated discipleship, which results in a season of accelerated generosity, which results in a season of accelerated deployment of the projects related directly to your mission and vision. That's what we're looking to do here. And if people will understand that, they get not only the funding of the things that you're trying to do here, but you get a transformed body that sees giving and generosity as different even from this day forward, right? And so it becomes more sustainable longer term. And you articulated that well, you know, in that example. Hey, so we want to get to some questions um, here in a minute, but the, I do want to, before we go to Q&A, I want to just take this idea of, you know, what are some innovations that we're seeing? What are some new styles, some new expressions that we're seeing out there? I think, you know, just kind of, let me just kick it off here. What I'm seeing is mostly innovations in communications, the tools and the methods that we're using and then in events, the way and the style and the expressions of our events. You guys want to weigh in on that a little bit and kind of talk through some innovations that you're seeing? Go ahead, John. You go first. Okay. I was waiting on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be a gentleman. You know, it, yes, uh, I, Jim, you nailed it. I, I think the, the digital aspect of what we're doing is good. So everybody's got the same question. How do we get people back into the building? Uh, there probably is a little bit of a bigger question than that for me. And that is, uh, if I think about becoming an outward facing or missional driven church is, what is it in the community? What's our reputation on the street? What are people saying about us out there outside the four walls? And so I think if we begin to develop tools and leverage the digital platforms that we have, 
Uh, we may or may not get everybody back. In fact, we probably won't get everybody back in the building. It used to be in the building, but we do have an opportunity in this accelerated uh, post-COVID world to really use digital platforms, to use our technology, even if it's not even that complex, but to leverage it to really begin to reach a brand new audience and to do the things that we're called to do. So to your point, I think even in the goals of the overall campaign is we're baking in uh, increases mm -hmm. in digital. The one I just mentioned with a $17 million goal, over a million of that is going to be going just into their online presence, what they call their mm -hmm. online church campus, to really build that out so that we're able then to reach people that we've never been reaching and reaching them in a new way that we're sort of used to now in 2022. Well said, John. That's really well said. That's good. Jennifer? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, again, I think it's in events and um, communications, you know, in events I, when possible. And I think we're there now. We're, we want people back for events. We want your people to come in person for some of these vision events that would lead up to a successful campaign. We want people to be in worship for those five to six weeks prior to Commitment Sunday but not all of them are going to be in the building. So we've got to recognize that there are folks at home. And when we are doing worship services during a campaign, we've got to make sure we've got easy ways for people to engage, easy ways for them to give and to pledge online. Um, events need to be not just video, you know, not just live streaming your event that you're doing for the in-person people, but probably a digital event that really resonates with folks at home. Um, so just being really mindful of that uh, and being flexible, you know, and I think we've always had to be flexible in campaigns. Uh, things are going to happen. You know, even pre-COVID, I had things happen with churches, snowstorms that close things down or other things. So we have to practice flexibility. COVID has taught us that. Figure out how to engage with your people and create a tool to reach them. If your people love podcasts, do a podcast. Uh, if your people prefer short little snippets of video, better be sending those out. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, Jim, I would, I would add to that too, is, uh, you know, in, in doing the digital aspect of what we do, I would say right now, I am spending a lot, investing a lot more hours into trying to figure out how to do that well yeah. and mm -hmm. trying to get good at that. Than now. And I think that's just kind of a credit to you and to Brad and the way that Janaris sort of says, this is the way we're going to do it is we're not just going to go, oh, yeah, we'll figure that out or have put that on the church. But I think as coaches in this business, we're really committed to going, we're going to try to figure this out and do it the best mm -hmm. way we possibly can. And that means a lot more investment from our side into the clients that we work with. Yeah, I think the important thing about digital, too, John, is to make sure that you do digital in a way that is native to you. I see churches that they'll hear a story about a church that's been way out in front on the digital piece for a long time. And they've kind of been over here just kind of doing their thing and they want to jump over here too quickly. You can't do that. You, you've got to maybe take what they're doing and move to that over time. But if they're using some of these edgy tools over here and what you've been relying on is just your basic Facebook post twice a week, which is nothing wrong with that, but that because that's who you are. Don't make the move too quickly over into a more yeah. aggressive di digital strategy, especially in a campaign season, because then it feels unnatural. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, you had another thought you were going to add there. Well, it had to do with that, Jim, just that uh, I think one of the things we bring to this is we listen. I want to listen. Well, what's the culture and the context of your church? And let's do things that are going to resonate with your people. 
whatever that is. Uh, I had a church that did, you know, people drove up to do uh, drop off their commitment cards. This was deep in the pandemic. People didn't even want to get out of their cars. And this church has a clown ministry and it's a big deal for their church. And they had all their clowns out there waving at kids and hand, you know, I mean, that is not going to work at every church. That might not even work at any other church, but it worked for them. It was a big deal. And, and so much of it is about leaning into the culture and the context of your church. And uh, that's really important. And we, I think each of us tries to bring that. We want to listen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things we want to make sure our clients hear is that it's not just these things, communication and events, but the Mm -hmm. public face itself. There's some very, very distinct innovations that we're seeing out there that uh, things that we might have done in COVID that are lasting on the other side of COVID. You know, one thing you referenced it, I think, just a second ago, Jennifer, we had started doing this before COVID, but we're, I think, all pretty much landed on this now. We've traditionally done five Sundays in the public place. I think most of us are saying it takes six now. It takes six Sundays to saturate your congregation and get to everybody. Sure, there's a few inner to inner circle people who have heard it, you know, well early in the cycle, but it takes six because the rotation of when people are here and the frequency of online and offline, leveraging your online content, having a legitimate online commitment process as a part of your um, your public face, all those things and weaving those in and making the public face just be very, very relevant in, the, in this uh, in this season. Using a podcast to supplement the, the pastor's sermon series, you know, all of those things. Are, are, are good innovations that are out there. And uh, we just tried to really be, as you say, John, tried to be students in much the same way we did when multi-site came on the, on the scene, mm. you know, 20 years ago. And we had to figure out how do you translate a one campus campaign into a multi-site environment? We helped figure, help churches figure that out. And we're doing the same thing here in this. So um, let's jump into some q and I'm looking over here. We've got some really good questions. I mean, some very mm-hmm. practical questions and some really good questions. So here's one. Um, and, uh, I'm John, you weigh in Jennifer second, and then we'll rotate and go back the other way. The second one, what is considered best practice for distance between campaigns? 12, 24, 36 months. We just completed a 27 month campaign in February, 2022. We completed a 10 million goal with 11.2 million received. Mm-hmm. Yes. Way to go. We love <laughs> way it. To go. So what's, what should be the distance between campaigns, John? Uh, well, first of all, uh, congratulations. I mean, that's fantastic. Obviously, it was run well. It was led well. It was communicated well. People felt like things were really going the right direction. What I would say is you're going to want to have let, let the land rest for a while. You're going to let, let people kind of recuperate and uh, give them a sense of job well done. But that doesn't mean we're not communicating vision during that time. What it means is, hey, well done. Congratulations. Communicating on the impact of those ministries even communicating on the further impact of those ministries. But I like to coach uh, churches to wait at least 12 months before they launch the next thing. But it's not so much the timing as much as the sense of why this campaign and why now? Those two questions have to be answered and they have to have a good answer to it. Why First Baptist and why do we need to do this right now? Is there a sense of urgency, Mm -hmm. a clarity, a vision that really helps us move forward? Jennifer, what say you? That's good, John. I was going to say similar. Um, I usually would say I'd like to see at least 12 months, but there's a lot of it depends, right? Uh, I'm also seeing a lot of churches that are um, and organizations that are doing things in phases. 
And in that sense, you really don't have a break. You know, there's a, um, we've got a, a $15 million project, but we're going to do phase one first and that's 7 million. And when we get there, then we're going to assess and determine when's the right time for us to launch into phase two. And, and that could be just six months later uh, if people are ready and the time is right. And again, all those other things are in play. What John just said, the vision is there. There's an urgency. Is God leading you to do it? Uh, so I think it could be a shorter time. It also could be much longer. I will say this, uh, churches that have campaigns that are run well are readier for the next one sooner. Mm. Let's say that again. If your campaign yeah. is run well, going to be ready for the next one sooner. Uh, when we, when I engage with churches who have had disasters with past capital campaigns, we didn't hit our goal. Our people didn't like it. Felt like a lot of pressure. You need a lot of time to kind of get, let people heal from that, uh, yeah. which is a good reason to do these well. Yeah. I would jump in Great. and really lean on the, it depends piece of it, because I think there are situations where you want to wait. And I think there are situations where you want to move ahead quickly. I would speak against donor fatigue. I don't think I've been doing this for 29 years. I don't think I've ever seen what I would call true donor fatigue. I have seen Agreed. vision fatigue. And so if you have a leader who is a spec and if you have a church that's growing and a leader who is especially good at articulating fresh expressions of vision, every time you've kind of checked these things off the box, there's another set of vision, then you might be able to not only move forward, you might need to move forward more quickly. I would use my own church, Perimeter mm -hmm. Church, as an example. My pastor for 42 years, uh, I mean, it wasn't my pastor for 42 years. He served Perimeter Church for 42 years. Randy Pope did 13 campaigns in 42 years. Do the math. If you were there for all 42 years, you didn't have very many years off. And what he was really good at was keeping the vision. Front. And by the way, our last two campaigns were two of the largest we ever did. So in his final seasons of ministry, they were some of the largest he was expert at keeping it fresh, but that is just, it's an, it depends. Certain churches might need to wait. Certain churches might not need to wait. So that's what I wanted, wanted you to hear. So the fact, and, and by the way, to Jennifer's point that you were, you completed that campaign so well, if you're growing, you might be in a position where you could come back and do something real, really quickly there. All right. So um, here's one. Um, so much of our truck is new in the last year post-COVID. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, you're going to take the lead on this one since John spoke first last time. So much of our church is new mm -hmm. in the last year post-COVID. So we are worried that a campaign this fall and next spring would be too soon. Would love to hear your thoughts. That's a great question. And we do hear that a lot. Uh, I think the time between uh, when a, a person first engages with your church or your ministry and the time when they're willing to make a gift is often a lot shorter than we think it is or than leaders think it is. They think, gosh, if somebody hasn't been here for at least a year, we can't ask them to give. Um, I just I don't agree with that. If folks are there, they've bought into your vision, they're excited, uh, particularly they may not be giving yet, but particularly if they've started giving in some way or volunteering or attending regularly, they're already telling you that they're in. And you are robbing them of the opportunity to be a part of this vision. Uh, the way that we run campaigns is so discipleship focused, and it's not an arm twisting situation. Would you want to have a newcomer get their arm twisted and dragged into something? No. Do you want to invite new people into a vision that's really compelling for what God's doing at your church? 
I think you do. Um, I had a, a church uh, about six months ago that uh, they had some folks who were first time visitors on Commitment Sunday who turned in a commitment card because they said, you know, we didn't know what we were walking into, but this is really cool. We, we love what this church is doing and we love your vision for ministry in our community. So you don't know. John? Yeah, that's so good, Jennifer. I, I really want to try to repeat what you said because I would uh, probably go down that path myself, but I would say you're right. It, it really goes back to discipleship. So there's something magical. I, I was a pastor for 20 years, so I watched this personally. There's something about a person that goes all in with their giving that means they're kind of going all in with their heart. They're going all in with their life. And all of a sudden, Jesus becomes a savior, and then he becomes a Lord, and I'm sort of following him with my whole heart. So I think opportunities in and around giving, in and around generosity, even if it is a campaign, that are more frequent than not are super helpful to get people where they engage their heart and go all in. Because when that happens, I think something magical happens. You know, Martin Luther called it the second conversion. There's something that just happens when I go all in like that. And so I have heard that too. It takes six months for them to start giving. It takes 12 months for them to start giving. I'm not of that school of thought. I think that actually people, when they really understand vision, they want to go all in. Why are millions of dollars being raised right now for a war in the Ukraine? Because it's touching people's heart. I want to be a part of the answer. I want to I want to help somebody else. Well, if you cast your vision at your church correctly, you're saying, listen, we're transforming lives all the time. We're involved here. This is a great place to park your money and to invest your money to see what God will do. You're not giving to the church. You're giving through the church to see great things take place. Yeah. Great thoughts from both of you. You know, and the thing that occurs to me as well here is just the thought that maybe this would be a great season for you to focus on just building your culture of generosity. Don't know so much worry about a campaign, but just build your culture mm -hmm. of generosity. That ecosystem, as I like to call it, where everything feeds and fuels the movement of generosity in, in your in your church. And one of the things you would do in a season of, of developing a culture of generosity is make sure that you're affirming people who start to give and who increase their giving. One of the reasons why it takes people so long um, to start giving wealth is that we just don't affirm and or even acknowledge them. You have to have a good first time new giver or new giver strategy. Help them to become more invested. We can show you categorically that when you start a new giver process, the acceleration of giving gets much shortened. When people say, well, you know, it takes 10 to 15 months for people to start giving. Yeah, because you just treat them like you don't even care about them. Right. It's OK to say thank you. And we've written resources about that gratitude. We've got a resource on first time givers or things like that. But I'm just thinking in addition to, you know, maybe you do a one year campaign, a shorter version of a campaign or just focus on um, a culture of generosity. Um, here's another one that I think kind of uh, 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 weighs in, come, comes to a nice uh, uh, place for us to talk about. Is it ineffective to launch a campaign when your church is struggling with generosity and meeting your annual budget. Mm. Um, any thoughts on that? John, you, you go first this time. Yeah, I think you just kind of nailed it in your last answer, Jim. I think there's something to the idea of coaching churches in generosity. So let's just start with general giving system mm -hmm. for a moment. How do you treat a first-time giver? Uh, quick, quick story. Um, I, I was adopted. This is way too much in the weeds, but I was adopted, and, they, and both my parents have passed away recently. 
So I was able to uh, contact that agency where my parents adopted me from, and I sent Mm -hmm. them a check. And I basically just said on the memo, thanks for allowing me to get a forever family. I got Mm -hmm. a letter back within two weeks and said, we are so pleased to be part of Mm -hmm. your forever family find. And and this went on and on about that entire thing. They just took the time to recognize something that was written in the memo about Mm -hmm. that check. And they wrote back to me and very personal, very... so you can only imagine how much my heart was moved, how much I'd like to go send them another check because I felt like I was really making a difference. I felt like it really meant something to me. So uh, what do you do for a first time giver? What do you do for a second time giver? What do you do for a fifth time giver? Is there a call made? Are you helping people really get involved? So general giving systems are a really big deal. But at the same time, uh, I have a church right now that was behind in their uh, budget uh, in 2021. Uh, but we were in the middle of a campaign. We continued on and we really try to work in the discipleship as well as the vision conversation to let them be successful in both of those areas. Good stuff. Jennifer, what say you? Good. Um, I, you know, if a church came to me and I do have some clients that, that fit this bill, one in particular that are saying, you know, our, our giving is down or has trended down since COVID. Uh, I want to know, and they're, but they're, preparing for a campaign. I want to know why. Let's make sure before we launch the campaign that we know why. Is it because one family that was a major giver providing 10% of your income moved to a different state? Well, that's that's a different issue then. Is there a pervasive issue of trust here where people feel like they don't trust the leadership of this church? So I think it's really important before you start a campaign to understand what's going on beneath the scenes. And that's you know, why we look at data and do data analytics. Uh, it's why we talk about building a culture of generosity as the first step before you even get into running your campaign, because it does matter. But if giving is declining, does it mean we can't do a campaign? No. Or if giving has declined and plateaued, doesn't mean you can't do a giving initiative. Uh, it just means we've got to figure out what's going on and we've got to have the right goal and we've got to address the issues. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is a really good place to summarize, you know, some things that you've heard really repetitively throughout here. And that is, you heard John talk about the from and the to. You heard Jennifer talk about the why and the what. Those are very, very related. And when I see this question, I know I have very limited information. But most of the time, when I see churches that are struggling with generosity and meeting the budget, it's because they're talking about too much about what and to, and not enough about why and from. And so I might, and again, I have very limited information, but that's what I generally see when I see that situation in terms of um, Uh, of the description you gave there. Hey, one last one, and I'm just going to take this one very quickly because it gives me a chance to just speak really on behalf of the firm. Um, The question came in and it's like, um, we did a capital campaign, uh, capital funds campaign 15 years ago. Um, It sounds like they did it themselves and we understand the basics of a capital fund campaign. Yeah, yeah. Why should we use a firm like Generis to run a new campaign instead of running an internal campaign? That is a great question. And I would just say, you know, there are people in this industry that say you always have to hire a consultant. I'm not going to say that. There are a few churches out there that are uniquely qualified to achieve results that would be similar to what we can, what, what a firm like ours or other firms in the, in the marketplace can help you achieve. 
But the, what we bring to the table, the, capital campaigns are really not a mystery. The general piece, it's the nuance that makes the difference. And we spend all of our time doing one thing. We study capital campaigns, how they work, why they work, what makes them successful. I mean, our clients pay us fees. And if we don't deliver for them value that's well in excess of what they could do on their own, they would never come to us. And so what we specialize is in taking what you could do on your own and adding a lot of value to that to help you to achieve a, a different level of funding that maybe you would not be able to figure out on your own. Some can. Knowledge is not really the key here. There's a lot of knowledge about capital campaigns that's available on, uh, on, on, the, on the Internet. But experience is really what drives all of this. For the experienced professional to be sitting the, able to sit in the room, as Jennifer says, we like to specialize in listening, not talking. Sometimes it's not the questions that we answer for you. It's the questions that we ask you that you've never thought of that add the greatest value to what we do. So those are things that I might say uh, in that. But that doesn't say that the do-it-yourself campaign can't be successful. They can, but it's not as easy as most people think it is. We spend a lot of time resourcing our team and understanding what drives campaigns and what makes them work well. So great question, though. Love. And we actually, um, Christy, I think if you could post it up there, we actually have a resource that's called the DIY Capital Campaign that we'd love to link you to. We actually gave some of our thoughts. You'd hear some of the things I just said. And um, it's a free ebook that you can download. We did that two or three years ago, and everything that's in there would still be relevant. So um, hey, I'm going to say thank you to John and Jennifer for being on here with me today. Great conversation, guys. I had a blast here just kind of talking yeah. through this stuff. Thanks for listening to the Church Plus podcast today. I know there are literally hundreds of podcasts you can listen to, so I'm grateful you have tuned in today. We always appreciate your support to subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, rate and review the podcast. Till next time, this is John Bennett with the Church Plus podcast.